0: finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Raise your hand if you like snooping on other people as much as I do. Nothing malicious, of course, but there's something about having a behind-the-scenes look at people's lives that is exciting. And when it comes to investing, who wouldn't want to know how others invest their money? Brian Portnoy, behavioral finance expert and co-editor of the book, How I Invest My Money, will take us on a little snooping adventure in this episode to look at how others invest their money.
1: You're listening to Millennial Money with award-winning money expert and serial entrepreneur, Shauna to Game, where we flip the script on the old school approach to everything your parents never taught you about money. Each week, Shauna creates a safe space by talking with special guests from around the world. About money wellness, entrepreneurship, traveling like a boss, and what makes millennials tick. Unique stories, trailblazing perspectives, tips, tricks, and everything there is to know about money. Find it all here as you uncover your money story and unlock the life you want to live. Pretty cool, right? Here's Shauna, money expert, Indiana Hoosier, and burger aficionado. Hi, my friend.
0: It is so good to have you here and yeah i ha- i have to admit a little something i i like to snoop my favorite thing to do is to go on a walk at night and look in houses to see how people live don't don't let your mind go racing this is really an innocent i promise guilty pleasure done completely in a pg manner but i have this feeling i'm i'm not alone on this one there's something about looking at other people's lives it's the premise behind why we use social media, right? Or, or our, um, what do we call it? Addiction, right, right, our addiction to social media. And since we don't openly talk about money, it's difficult to know where other people truly stand. So if we're going to talk about investing, the number one question you always ask me over and over and over again is how should I invest my money? What funds in real estate? Should I buy cryptocurrency? What about gold and silver? You name it. Well, the book, How I Invest My Money, was born from a blog post by Joshua Brown at his The Reformed Broker blog, answering that very question that so many other people wanted to know. And this blog post went viral, and Joshua and Brian teamed up to pull together 25 chapters from money experts talking about how they invest. So by the end of this episode, you'll learn about Brian's investment journey, and you're here Tons of other interesting takeaways from this very insightful book. So let's get into it. We're here to talk about a lot of different things, but in particular, your new book, uh, How I Invest My Money, which is this really cool collection of uh, short essays from experts who are in the money field, who have devoted their careers to helping other people with their money. And I know this all came uh, inspired by a blog post by Joshua Brown, your your co-editor, Uh, the blog post was called How I Invest My Money. And it really went viral. And I think it's an interesting idea because so many people want to know how do the money people actually do money and what trips them up? So I thought we'd just start with, you know, why do you think this blog post uh, really went viral? And and why is this book ultimately resonating with people?
1: (laughs)
2: Um, Well, the easy answer is that everyone's pretty nosy. (laughs) <laughs> and everyone likes to know what everybody else is up to um you know you, you know as well as anyone that that money is a an emotional lightning rod and issues of status and envy and curiosity and anxiety are kind of just wrapped up with it so you know when there's the opportunity to kind of see and hear what other people are doing um and you know including so-called experts who have devoted you know their careers to being financial advisors or portfolio managers um i think it um it raises eyebrows so yeah josh's um blog post in mid 2019 was uh um very well received and you know he and i right after that talked about maybe getting together a, a group of friends and peers to you know for a collected group of essays
0: yeah i i love it i think it's such a Interesting idea. And if you let me indulge for just a moment, um, you talk about the emotions around money, which is something I really want to dive into. I talk a lot about mindset and your money story and how that how that basically impacts you know the decisions that you make about money. And your essay, I'd love to read the first two paragraphs because I feel like a lot of people can relate. You said, my parents fought about money all the time. It's not that they were lacking. My dad made good money. My mom was good at spending it. They didn't seem to like each other for many reasons and money served as this language of conflict and a currency of control. Following the divorce, issues of alimony and child support extended the unpleasantries for decades. Fast forward to recent times, I'm sometimes asked what I learned from my parents about money. The short answer is nothing, which I love. (laughs) A longer, harsher answer is that money is a tool to buy things and to hurt others. And that it really impacted me those words, and I think so many people can can relate to that. You know, how do we balance this relationship with money? This this tool that you say to buy things, but then also it's used to hurt people. Like, how do we rationalize that out?
2: I think before we rationalize it, we we have to. Oh man, where to where to start? I mean, first of, first <laughs> of all, you know. The, the 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 brain is hardwired to make terrible decisions on all things money like the 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 brain is wired to survive and thrive in difficult times and so you know money life which is really complicated and noisy as a subset of this really big noisy world we live in it's it's overwhelming so i i i i, I speak to lots of crowds, um, work with lots of clients. And I really like to actually stay away from the word irrational and just say that we're normal and that we're human. And I do think there's an element of validation, uh, that happens when, you know, people like you and me who kind of have some paperwork and some, maybe some credibility in the world of financial decision-making, you know, we can say to others, it's okay to find this scary. It's okay to, you know, acknowledge that there's a lot of anxiety around it because, you know, the old school definition of money from seventh grade, you know, unit of accounts, store of value, means of exchange, like that's, that's like nonsense. You know, what money is, is sort of one of the most primary ways in which we relate to other human beings. It's arguably, the most important form of trust that exists among all humans, because you and I can fly halfway around the world. And if we have the right color piece of paper, we can exchange it with a complete stranger who will give us what we want. So it really sits at the, at the root of kind of our social relations. And it's no surprise that there's a whole stack of emotions. Some of them good hope, aspiration, um, you know, positive stuff alongside, you know, some of the some of the more negative stuff. But you can't, you, you you can't have the the good stuff without the bad.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I like that explanation a lot, and I think that's obviously where most people struggle. And and I'm curious about your thoughts on this. But you know, I find especially since I started doing this podcast, but I knew this this reality long before. We hmm. don't talk about money with anybody, and I think particularly when we're Maybe just starting out in our 20s, even our 30s, but heck, it could be any age. We can feel like we're in this bubble or this shell that only the mistakes we've made exist and nobody else can relate to that. And so, you know, it's, it's, I'm always trying to figure out, you know, how do we begin to develop this uh, language around money so it's okay to talk about all the good things, but then it's also equally okay to talk about when things didn't go well, or maybe you spent money on something that just didn't work out. You know, it's, I'm always curious about like how we actually develop this language where it it, it is okay to talk about these things.
2: Yeah. I I think about this a lot too. And, you know, there's that element of validation that I referenced. There's also an element of permission where, Mm. you know, you as a CFP, me as somebody who, you know, has an investment background and is now, you know, very wrapped up in the world of applied behavioral finance, which is a fancy way of saying practical tools to make good money decisions. Um, it's important for us to, you know, say to others, but also not and not just lecture, but to engage in conversations that you know um, create a, a trusting environment where you know, you can really talk about these things. And maybe that could come across as a little bit dramatic. But the fact is that money is the least popular topic. It's the most stressful topic that anybody has, you know, you go to the American Psychological Association, they do polls all the time. And one of the most stressful uh, items in people's lives. And money tends to rank at the top of the list every year above and beyond religion, politics, marriage, divorce, wow. you name it.
0: Wow, that's crazy. Yeah.
2: So, some, some, yeah, so some, something's going on uh, and it's been going on for a long time. Um, the world of social media is not, happen- not, not helping, you know, for the, I think at this point, obvious reason that just everybody is in everybody else's business. And so, you know, you can you can see what's going on. You can begin to, I don't know, uh, observe things that might not be entirely true. And, and one thing's for certain. Like, it's relatively easy to see others' assets. It's almost impossible to see their liabilities. So you've got a whole world of people um, who are just fronting their assets but hiding their liabilities. And so no one really knows what in the heck's going on out there. But we all then sort of extend the stories in ways that sometimes make ourselves Mm. feel worse.
0: Yeah, I, I, I so agree. And I think, you know, reading a lot of these essays, obviously people talked a lot about their money story. And... That is another topic I try to talk about a lot on on this podcast. I'm curious, you know, what are some ways that we can go about like if we've never thought about our money story or maybe how it's impacting us financially, what are some of the ways we can figure out like sort of I guess unpack or unravel what that is and then how that's maybe impacting good or or not so good uh, in our money decisions or, or, you know, keeping us from goals, whatever it might be.
2: Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a really good question and there's so many different ways to, to, to go with it. Um, the first is to maybe the first is just sort of table setting in terms of what I call money life. Um, at least in the world that I live in a lot and come from money and investing, uh, and finance sort of go together. Um, a lot. So, you know, sometimes when people like you and me talk about money, you know, others think we're talking about stocks and bonds and making a lot of money on, you know, Tesla or Bitcoin or, 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 or <laughs> stuff like that. But in fact, money life has numerous dimensions. So not just investing, but saving, spending, earning, borrowing, um, uh, uh, giving, you know, in, in, in the charitable sense. And so, you know, I think what we can be doing is providing um, vocabulary concepts and mental models to people to at least help them make sense of the world. I, I mean, the, the first thing we want to do from a, almost a sociolinguistics point of view is, is create the right categories for people to be thinking. in. so just pointing out that money life has all these different dimensions and we, pro- we know them like I'm, no one's surprised that saving and spending and borrowing are all part of it. But like, okay. Here's the playing field. Here's what's going on. And then from there, you know, we can begin to get into questions like, you know, straightforward stuff. What are your earliest memories with regard to to money? Um was money a source of uh, you know, what was it a a good or a bad topic in the home? Um did your parents seem to have the same philosophy toward the different elements? of 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 money life like where were the struggles where where were the good parts i mean there's a lot of different ways to go but just beginning to you know go back in time and and think about you know if if money among other things is kind of a a culture or a cultural habitat that you live in and one that's Mm -hmm. given to you not one that um not that, not one that you choose for the same reason. None of us choose the, you know, the, the broader environment in which we're raised and developed, but like, what, what was that situation and, and what did you observe? Um, I mean, some people, you know, especially in the field of financial therapy, they, they go way down the path because people have had traumatic experiences. Um, but even if we don't cross into that world, you know, we can ask people to think about kind of the good, bad and and neutral in their memories of of things that money were attached to.
0: The weather is getting warmer. I'm so excited. And it is time to say goodbye to all those jackets and sweaters and hello to the shorts and T-shirts. a million bucks wearing this cozy workout friendly outfit I've worn it for like five days straight get warm weather ready with quince go to quince.com slash etm for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's q-u-i-n-c-e.com slash etm to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash etm I'm going to be real with you Delete.me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web. And in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. I just started using Delete.me and I got my regular personalized privacy report. (laughs) I was shocked what they found and removed. It was pages of information about me that I did not want online. Here's how it works. And now, listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash etm. That's monarchmone dot slash etm for your extended 30-day free trial. We have an Ask Shauna, and this one comes from Emily. And Emily says, Hi, Shauna. My husband and I are moving to a smaller city in a different state for his new job, where the cost of living is lower. Salaries tend to be lower in this location as well, but thankfully, my husband will earn a similar salary. I will actually keep my salary as well since I'm fortunate enough to continue working remotely. And we currently pay a somewhat average rent price for our area for a two bedroom, 1200 square foot apartment in the suburbs, about $2,000 a month. We're struggling with what to pay for rent in this new, more affordable city. We certainly won't plan to pay the same amount even if we can technically still afford it. However, having a nice apartment with some amenities makes me feel a bit better about the move overall and working from home indefinitely. When we look at what we can save versus what luxuries we can afford, it's hard to strike a balance. Do we go for the cheapest apartment and make some sacrifices to save almost $10,000 a year? Or do we treat ourselves to something a bit nicer that still fits the dream apartment vibe without breaking the bank? still saving a few thousand. We recognize this is a pretty good problem to have, but we just can't figure out how much we should strive to spend versus save. Looking forward to your wisdom. Thanks. Emily, yeah, I mean, come on, this is such a great problem to have. You are right on the money, but this is also a dilemma that so many people face. It's it sounds almost silly to talk about it in terms of a dilemma. But this is really where money gets in that gray area, right? You just aren't sure what option is better. And so it's about trying to figure out pros versus cons. So honestly, I think you can't go wrong with this decision either way. It all comes down to, I believe, your values and how your decisions line up with those particular values. So when I say values, I mean, what is important to you both? Like really, really important to you both, And I think it's okay to splurge from time to time, especially since you're renting and not buying. If you were buying, I would say we really got to pin down what that is because spending more versus spending less definitely has a a quite profound difference, but renting is a little bit different. And I did this when I moved to the beach for a year and a half Uh, about six, five years ago now, I think. I was like, I want to live by the beach. And Jeff and I weren't married yet. And so I found this amazing apartment. It was in this really cool complex in Long Beach, California. And it was the best decision I ever made. There were six different condos. It faced the ocean. I had an ocean view outside of my condo. And we all became like family. I've never had an experience like that before. And it was expensive and it was definitely a luxury. And I only lived there for about a year and a half. But it was such an impactful decision. I would never take it back. I would never, ever take it back. In fact, that's actually where Jeff and I got married. (laughs) Facing the ocean in this beautiful courtyard outside of our complex. So the moral of the story is, Sometimes it's okay to splurge. But either way, you're still going to save money, I think, which is always a win. And I would just say make sure you have a plan for those savings so it doesn't just sit in your bank account. We talk always about that black hole in bank accounts. So even if you think you're going to save a couple of thousand dollars, somehow it just evaporates if we don't have a plan for that money. So have a plan automatically withdraw that money, send it different places so that you can really use that money in powerful ways. But here are a couple of things to think about. Number one, how are you set up for your emergency fund? Where are you at? Do you have at least a couple of months of fixed expenses saved? Or do you maybe need to beef that up a little bit more? What are some of your money goals for this year? And where are you in in terms of those? I realize we just hit a new year, but for example, if you want to try and indulge in a trip towards the end of the year, provided we can all travel, hopefully we can all travel by the end of the year. And let's say that trip will cost 5000 bucks. where are you in terms of saving for that goal? So just think about your goals and think about where you are in terms of saving for those, I would say, more immediate goals, goals that you really want to hit in, in this year. And then what does the next? one to three years look like for you as as best as you can tell? And would either decision deter those plans for the next one to three years? You mentioned your jobs. uh, How steady are your jobs? You know, what would happen if one of you did end up losing the job? Would you be okay if you were in that higher monthly rent? Just a little food for thought. And lastly, I think Think about what you would ideally do with that extra $10,000 versus the few extra $1,000. And if, at the end of the day, it doesn't make that big of a difference, but you really would rather live, splurge and live in that uh, little bit more indulgent place, then I don't think there's anything wrong with going for it if you've thought about all of these questions, right? Uh, money decisions don't always have to be practical, but they must align with your values and your goals. And that is where you can't make a wrong decision if you're thinking about it that way. So as long as the higher price place isn't getting in the way of you paying your bills and moving closer to your goals, then I don't think it's a bad decision. But again, this is up to you. So really just spend some time thinking about this and uh, let me know what you decide. I'm I'm, I'm super curious. Music. I'm just curious how did you make your way into being really excited about the you know the mindset feature around money?
2: Yeah, that started about 10 years ago, I'd say. I mean going way back, um I did a a, a doctorate in social sciences and so I studied politics and economics and sociology and history and and a lot of it was kind of around Kind of capitalism and and the social institutions that that make for capitalism. So I'll stop boring you and your your listeners right now on that. But I, I guess I've thought well,
0: I, that's a whole that's a whole other podcast episode. Yeah, I think so. <laughs>
2: but but I've thought pretty long and hard about like markets and society and the relationship between kind of individual aspiration and 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 how that fits into society. So. That's the background, and I decided not to go into an academic career. I ended up um just being really interested in the markets uh and and worked for a company called Morningstar that I'm sure you know of and some of your listeners do, uh based in Chicago, where where I live, doing investment research. And you know, um just kind of f- figuring out good investments and, and, and writing about things like that. And then around 2010, 2011, um, just almost by accident, I stumbled across the field of behavioral science and behavioral finance. So read a book called The Art of Choosing by, um, mm-hmm. by, by Sheena Iyengar. I mean, the book literally changed my life. I and mean, it was just sort of one of those, like from a movie or a cartoon, like that light bulb moment where I reimagined investing less as a financial problem and more as a decision or choice problem. Um, And from there, you know, Kahneman and Tversky and Thaler and Ariely and so many others. And, you know, here I am 10-ish years later. And I find this stuff as fascinating as I ever have because there's so much to learn and when you map some of the new disciplines in neuroscience and evolutionary psychology and, and other fields into all of this, y- you realize that when we're talking about money, what we're actually talking about is what it means to be human. And, and I can read and write and talk about that all day.
0: You and me both. <laughs> we we yeah. could grab a coffee yeah. and have a very long conversation post-COVID. <laughs>
2: Yeah, post po- post post COVID, my days will be filled with coffees with people like you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I look forward to those days. Um, one of the you t- you talked about these these four money buckets in your essay that I really liked, and I, I want to talk about one of the money buckets. Everybody else is going to have to pick up the book to read the other three, but you talk about this idea of of juicy cash, which um, really caught my attention. Uh, I, I'd love to know, you know, like why is juicy cash one of your four buckets? You know, what do, what do the listeners need to know about having juicy cash?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I, I've used that term casually for like a few years, and I put it in my essay without really thinking much about it. And I, it's probably what people ping me about the the most. I mean, <laughs> on the one hand, it sounds like a really bad like sweatpants like fashion lineup. <laughs> Um, but, um, so there, there's a prior, let, let, me answer your question, but take a prior step, which is that one thing I pointed out in my chapter, but a pretty large percentage of other contributors, um, uh, alluded to is that they hold quote unquote too much cash. So, you know, there are models that, uh, tell you you know, you should have X percent in stock and X, X percent, Y percent in bonds and Z percent in cash. And um, the cash stake is never supposed to be very big because there's, you know, at least on paper um, or at least statistically uh, productive uses for that capital. You can earn or that cash. You can earn a rate of return on it. People like me we often have 10, 15, even 20% of our entire net worth in cash which is like really not good according to any traditional model because I could be getting you know I could be making you know nowadays 0% on my cash or 1% um because you know over you know we we have the lowest interest rates in basically 500 years um so Yeah, savers are being punished in a way that they never have before. Um, But the reason I hold cash is uh, there there are multiple reasons. One is um, my human capital and financial capital are highly correlated, meaning that I I work in the markets, generally defined. So if markets go way down, it also means that my job stability goes way down. And um, and if not my job, then my you know. My customers or potential employers, so you know I cash up to have a more stable lifestyle, and I just like the the feeling that you know if bad stuff happens, um, my wife and kids are going to be just fine for a period of time. So that's the context in which this juicy cash notion comes from, and precisely because I hold you know too much cash or more cash than a uh, 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 sort of a rational economist would say is prudent, I- I've looked far and wide for ways to make a little bit more on the cash because, you know, you could make, you know, a fraction of a percent or, or effectively zero in a savings account. um, Or, um, or you can look elsewhere. And, you know, as I point out in that chapter, very briefly, you know, have found some municipal bond um, investments that I, I guess we could call them bond or fixed income, but they're very short term. They're liquid. Um, there's, v- you know, just I'll spare you and your listeners, the um, details, but very little credit risk um, uh, despite the fact that it sounds like there, it sounds like there might be, if you, you kind of go through the documentation. So I'm very comfortable putting a fair amount of cash in that strategy. And so instead of earning 0%, I make, um you know, two to three uh, percent, which might not sound like a lot, but you know, I'd rather make three percent on a thousand dollars than zero. Rather have thirty bucks than zero bucks.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll take thirty over zero any day. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, well, I, you know, there's there's so much, uh, great information that each of these people share. Are there any other? you know, essays or, or really consistent money themes that, that emerged that um, like really stand out to you?
2: Oh, totally. So um, one nice thing about the book, and I'm proud of it for a bunch of reasons, but, you know, one is that I think it's really user-friendly. It's 25 chapters. Each, no chapter I think is more than five pages. Um, so you get these short vignettes from serious money people and what Josh and I did at the outset, uh, Josh Brown, my co-editor, um, was just, you know, go to the group of people you, you, you see on the list. And we said, read, read Josh's blog. I, I had written my version of it. Read, read my blog. And here's a blank piece of paper. And you get 1,500 words to tell your money story. There was no direction. Um, there was no nudge or, hey, you're an expert in this, so you should talk about you know that in fact we told people don't this isn't a commercial this isn't an opportunity for you to tell us about like how you invest other people's money this is how you invest your own money and so what was remarkable was how disparate the chapters are you know some people don't even in a word mention anything about their investments um, they just talk about the life that they've lived and how money has been a source of both, you know, uh, 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 joy and sadness and, you know, depend depending on the essay. So one of the themes is that there was n- no theme. Everybody came back just with a very personal story. If you read Bob Seawright's chapter, which is one of the earlier ones, he spent the entire time talking about a lake cottage that's in his family that on paper would be a terrible investment because it's falling apart and it can't be winterized and all this other stuff, but it ends up being the place in his life for um, you know, four generations of his family to spend time with. So how does he invest? He invests in this house because it creates the life that he wants to live. So what I think's beneficial especially for people in their twenties and thirties and forties is to see the variety of life experiences that people have. And, you know, we've already gotten a ton of great feedback on the project and I was hoping this would be true. And it is that everybody I've talked to has found one or two chapters that really spoke to them where it's like, Oh, she's just like me or, Oh, he, he reminds me of this. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. Like, Oh, I do that too. Maybe I'm not crazy, but whatever the experience is, um, that, you know, we go back to validation and permission and even empathy. You you can kind of find some fellow travelers and realize that, um, money is value laden and how we save, spend, invest, borrow, give, um, even the jobs that we choose to earn a living, um, Th- those are all just so cl- closely wrapped up with our, not just our values, but our identity, like wh- who we are and and money to some extent becomes both a, an embodiment and expression of our identity. Um, and that's a good thing if you understand that and can channel it.
0: Yeah, I so agree. I One of the essays that really stood out to me was um, Leanne Mikos. She's actually actually a personal friend of mine. And I know her story, but I think what she wrote was really powerful. And I don't want to spoil too much for anyone who's going to pick up the book, but she talks about this idea of net worth not being self-worth and that money... For her, even as an expert, has never been a pleasant topic. Um, you know, this is something I've struggled with with myself, and I know a lot of listeners have as well. And we've kind of talked about this in circles, but. You know what would you say to those listeners who are really stuck in that trap of you know maybe they're got a lot of student loan debt or the net worth side of things just doesn't look as yeah. great, especially this year. Could be anyone as great as you know you'd want it to be, and that somehow right. they're they're tying that to you know I'm not worthy or whatever those those words might be. You know how do you separate those two?
2: Well, it's hard. Um, I mean, the first thing we need to acknowledge and embrace is that it's really hard. And sometimes it feels like we're failing, um, but we're not alone. And I, I'm really glad that you flagged um, uh, Leanne's chapter because, it you know, I'm not supposed to play favorites, but it's really one of my favorites. I mean, <laughs> um, and, and she and I had, you know, you know, I, I think a pretty powerful exchange about it because she revealed a lot about herself and she said it was a bit of a transformative experience. Um, for her to put all of that, not only put it on paper, but then put it out into the world, um, and, and I just, you know, loved being able to get to know her a little bit. She, you know, we've mutual friends. I didn't know her prior to the, prior to the project. Um, maybe I can answer the question constructively by saying that one thing that is consistent across mostly all of the contributors is that they have a semblance of a plan. That doesn't mean they have sophisticated Mm -hmm. portfolios with fancy investments. It doesn't mean that, you know, they're doing some strange municipal bond strategy that I invest in for, forget all of that. That's actually noise. The, 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 the the signal is that um, having a plan is better than not having a plan. And secondly, there are lots of people in, ver- in a variety of ways who can help you along that journey. It could be a friend. It could be a financial advisor. Um, the financial advice business in the broadest possible sense, and that ranges from, you know, stockbrokers on one hand to financial therapists on the other and a dozen different types in between. Um There's a wonderful opportunity for people to find an expert of of some form who can help them understand what it is they're up against. And and as you uh, as you allude to, you know, there is just some on the ground, real world dollars and cents issues. You have too much student debt; it's overwhelming. The interest is accumulating. What are you supposed to do? Um, It's look. It's hard. It's it's really hard but um, precisely because going back to our original point that money's so hard to talk about, we're often scared and embarrassed to ask for help. What I would say is ask for help. Find, find somebody or, or a community or a cohort that understands where you're coming from and can to some extent help. Look, if you owe a million dollars and you make $20,000 a year, I mean, it's an absurd example, you're you're kind of in a bad spot, right? Like, so, sometimes there's no avoiding the math. But um, for even for people who have sort of a, a normal, difficult situation, there are often things that you can't and won't think about on your own.
0: Yeah, that's such great advice. And, uh, you know, there's so much in this book, even that I walked away with. You know, again, just having people being able to share their stories. You know, how can somebody who pick ups the book, reads the book, you know, how can they figure out what is shared in the book, and then figure out like maybe what to adopt in their lives? Like, what do you what do you want the readers to to uh, translate into their own life?
2: You know, it's a good question. It it it, it just. Referencing back to something I said a few minutes ago, it might be the case that when you go through these chapters, and again, it's 25 five-page chapters, um, this is not heavy lifting. Um, As you go through the book and you find that one or two, the, the, the one or two contributors where you say, huh, they're just like me or their story resonates with me, push yourself hard to ask why. Why are they just like you? Why is this resonating? Is there something, because everybody in the the book's pretty successful, um, you know, in in, in the world, in in the narrow financial sense, Um, which isn't to say that many people in the book um, have had like incredibly difficult upbringings. I mean, the person in the book, I mean, I won't spoil it, but the person in the book who currently here at the end of 2020 is probably by far the wealthiest person somebody who has gargantuan sums of money currently he grew up homeless and partly homeless and lived in the back of a car for three years so um, he tells his story in a way that's you know um, that that that's powerful but I guess find who resonates with you push yourself hard to ask why. And then see if there are lessons or paths or even a few breadcrumbs you can follow to, to say, oh, okay, this, this is what they did or hmm, this is where they ended up. And even if they don't tell you how they ended up there, you might say, ah, oh, I'm here. They're there. I want to get there. How did they do that? And to the extent that you can't sort of infer from the chapter, that's when you reach out for help and say, huh this person seems like they're like me and they ended up in a situation that I'd like to be in. How how do I, how do I make that happen? Um, um, And and you know, as well as anybody, like, it's so hard to talk about this, but if you can find yourself in a cohort or a community or in an advisory or coaching relationship where someone takes you and your problems seriously and can demonstrate both technical uh, competence as well as empathy man, you're, you're in a good spot. Like you're going to be able to fight and there's a good chance you're going to be able to win.
0: I love that. I love that. We're going to be able to win. Well, Brian, this has been so fantastic. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours. (laughs) Uh, I would love for you to tell listeners where they can go to connect with you and also where they can go to pick up a copy of the book, How I Invest My Money.
2: Yeah. Well, unfortunately it appears we only have one bookstore left. (laughs) <laughs> um, if, if, if you have a local bookstore, please buy it through them. Um, but otherwise, Amazon is the place to go. Um, and for me, I guess the two places uh, to track me down, one is Twitter. Um, actually, financial Twitter or FinTwit is notwithstanding all the BS on Twitter. Um, FinTwit is, is a really uh, warm and welcoming community where people share ideas and, and help each other out. So I'm at Brian Portnoy, just my whole name, at Brian Portnoy. And then um, I um, own and run a financial uh, wellness platform called Shaping Wealth. And so the website is shapingwealth.com. And that'll give a little bit of high-level uh, information as to the uh, programming and technology that my team and I are building uh, to help people achieve financial well-being. Um, and uh uh and if you know anyone wants to get in touch with me they could do that through you know through the website
0: i don't know about you but i thought it was super exciting to hear behind the scenes how other people invest their money and i read how i invest my money and i learned a lot from the book and it was just really exciting to read about other people sharing their money stories particularly Finance experts, because I think when you do that, it's so powerful. You realize how much we all are so much alike. So, definitely check out the book and pick up a copy. And if you love this episode, do me a favor share it with a friend, share it with a family member, get them excited about investing. And I will see you back here in a few days for a brand new
1: episode. Hey, you. with a fresh new episode.